One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I am not Sharon Bessel, nor am I Anna Greta Hunter. My name is Angus Blackman. I'm editor of PolicyForum.net and producer of Policy Forum Pod and our sister show, Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny. And I'm jumping behind the mic today to host the final episode of 2021. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by PolicyForum.net. And we're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you want to play a bigger role in policymaking, studying at Crawford will provide you with the range of skills and expertise you need to make a difference. We have a wide range of degree programs and short courses available, covering environmental and energy policy, national security, social policy, international development, and much more. You can check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. As regular listeners will know, we're recording remotely. Uh, We're very much hoping to get back into the studio in the new year, but we ask for your forgiveness as we uh, record in slightly not ideal circumstances. But today I am thrilled to be joined by three guests who should be very familiar to you as we look back on the year, reflect on some of the discussions we've had, and look forward to 2022 on the pod today. First, we have Professor Sharon Friel. Sharon will be well known to regular listeners. She is an ARC Laureate Fellow and Professor of Health Equity at the Australian National University. She is Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance at ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance, a school where she was also Director from 2014 to 2019. Her interests are in the political economy of health equity, governance related to the social determinants of health inequities, trade and investment, food systems, urbanisation and climate change. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Delighted to be here. Next, we have Anna Greta Hunter. Uh, She is the Human Futures Fellow at ANU College of Health and Medicine. She's a cardiologist and physician with a strong focus on patient-centered care and preventative medicine. She's the interim chair of the Commission for the Human Future and has a strong interest in climate change and the social determinants of health. Welcome to your own podcast, Anna Greta. (laughs) <laughs> it's great to have you chairing us. Angus. <laughs> good to have you behind the microphone. Well, it's great to be here. And Sharon Bessel. Uh, Sharon is Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School, uh, Director of both the Children's Policy Centre and the Inequality Research Centre here at ANU. Her research interests revolve around issues of social justice and human rights, and she's undertaken research across Australia, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, and Southern Africa, where she has worked with government, non-government, and international agencies in Australia and the region. Welcome to your own podcast, Sharon. Hi, Angus. I am so excited to have you on that side of the mic and to be on this side of the mic. It's a real treat. 
Yes, it, it's a treat. It feels a little weird, I've got to say. Um, for listeners, I'm coming actually from Southeast Asia right now. So the uh, the the remote, it's very remote. We've been recording remotely all year, but uh, this is quite probably the furthest distance I think we've had in a while. So I wanted to start the discussion today by talking a little bit about the pandemic. We're nearly two years in now and health and health policy has been forced into the public consciousness in a way not seen for decades or arguably ever. You all work either directly on health health and well-being or on issues that are connected to it. As researchers, and in your case, Anna Greta, of course, as a doctor, I'd like to hear from all of you about where you think Australia is at really in terms of its approach to health and well-being and whether we're learning the right lessons from the pandemic. Sharon Friel, maybe we can start with you. Well, great, great question. I guess, um, so where's Australia at uh, in terms of health, well-being, health equity, uh, and sort of positioning that uh, in relation to the pandemic? So we've certainly done well, I think, when it comes to the pandemic. We've got such high levels of vaccination. Uh, we've had incredible compliance uh, across society. We haven't had an equitable distribution of the vaccine within society or certainly across uh, the world. But the average uh, looks good. But what it has shown us is we've got some serious fault lines within the Australian society and that really matters for our health uh, as as a nation. And we aren't really doing anything about some of those underlying fault lines. Uh, we've had some incredible positive policy responses uh, that, you know, when you think about employment, income support, there's been some really good uh, quick uh, responses that if we did that on a long-term basis, that would be really good for our health. But... For Australia to address these uh, social conditions, these social determinants of health, uh, we're a long way away from doing that in any uh, systemic way. So doing well as far as uh, kind of addressing the pandemic, I think, uh, but certainly not doing well when it comes to addressing uh, the the basic drivers of poor health uh, within Australia. Anna Greta? Uh, I think Sharon's put it really well that we we can in part celebrate what we've achieved in terms of our coronavirus response um, and that it has uh, continued to highlight some of the serious fault lines that exist, particularly in health equity. Um, we can see that, you know, globally we are an outlier in the sense of having a really low rate of mortality and a low rate of infection. In parts of Australia, we've had very little in the way of coronavirus infection and and a number of us are sitting in a city which has not seen much death or disease from COVID at all. Um, And so I think there's two things that I've been reflecting on. One is exactly what Sharon's just described, that it's the social determinants of health that will probably determine how the rest of the virus plays out and the pandemic impacts. And so as a society, as we, if our goal is to continue to reduce the impacts from coronavirus, paying deliberate and, and careful attention to the social determinants of health will make a really significant difference to the rest of the pandemic process. But the other side of the coin that I've been thinking about is, is the potential need and role for, for gratitude. 
Um, I'm particularly struck, Angus, we've spoken, you know, on a semi-weekly basis and we've been reflecting on your experience in Malaysia. And I speak to friends and colleagues in Europe and in the United States. And when we talk to people around the world about the experience they've had with this pandemic, I'm, I'm deeply affected by the mortality that's that we hear reported and that it's been a very serious part of lived experience. I'm also acutely aware of how hard it's been in places like Melbourne uh, with protracted periods of lockdown. Um, and I'd like to give another vote of thanks to the extraordinary work of the Australian community in caring for each other. These periods of hardship that we've been through, the lockdowns and the changes into our social dynamics particularly, uh, really have, have saved an extraordinary number of lives. We really have had one of the best possible outcomes for COVID, um, particularly in, in these parts of Australia which haven't seen uh, the disease running out. And so gratitude, I think, is a really important part of how I'm feeling about the COVID experience in the Australian context. I'm tremendously grateful for the hard work that's been put in by communities in looking after each other. And I, I think we should give a vote of thanks. I certainly give a vote of thanks to the work that's been done. I think thanking people for their hard work is actually helpful in terms of the psychological recovery. Um, and I also think it helps us to see where we might like to go in terms of maintaining uh, good levels um, of support for each other and low levels of coronavirus infection in the years ahead. Sharon Bessel, I mean, your research isn't directly on health and well-being, but you're director of the Children's Policy Centre here at ANU. And I know we had a really interesting conversation a couple of months ago with Tim Moore and Karen Gounson about the impact of the pandemic on young people in particular. In that discussion, I think what stood out to me most was how important it is to give all people, and I guess this is to some extent what Anna Greta was just getting at, uh, but particularly young people, a sense of hope in this kind of period. And I wanted to get your thoughts. It's kind of a difficult question, I think, but I wanted to get your thoughts on really how we start to think about that, how we do that, particularly for young people in the context of your work. Mm, yeah, thanks, Angus. I mean, I will certainly defer to the public health expert and the cardiologist on issues around health. Um, so we'll focus on my uh, my response to that on, I guess, issues around wellbeing and and children and young people's wellbeing particularly. Um, I did just want to pick up first on a couple of things um, that Sharon and Anna Greta have said, and you know I think we we are incredibly fortunate to have been uh, in Australia during the pandemic. Um, we haven't experienced what many countries have. And I've done a lot of work in Indonesia and I look at some of the, the devastating impacts in Indonesia and I feel incredibly grateful to be um, here in Australia. But I am conscious that even in Australia, this pandemic has played out very differently for very different for different groups of people. Um, and I think perhaps those people who have been separated from families either uh, within Australia or um, between Australia and and other countries are probably feeling less grateful, you know, particularly those people who missed out on really important milestones, who missed out on a last goodbye with people that they lost. Um, and so I, I think, you know, there have been very, very different experiences of, of this pandemic. Um, Angus, to go to, to the question that you asked about hope and children and young people, I I don't 
think we have done particularly well in Australia in supporting children and young people through this pandemic. Now, having said that, I'm conscious of the point that, that Anna Greta made, and there have been some beautiful things that have happened within communities. You know, early on, we saw the teddy bears in the windows across Australia. We saw people putting in place more libraries outside their houses so children could swap books. You know, we saw really powerful messages from the community to children. Um, about uh, how they were are valued and how they they wanted to to support them, but I do think at a at a broader policy level we haven't and and at a, at a the level of the kind of public and political narrative around the pandemic and the discourse we haven't really given children and young people the message of hope that we should have. Um, I think for for children. Um, they were really the missing group throughout much of this pandemic. You know, all of our responses were very adult-centred. Whether or not we should have closed schools is, is I think, not a, a debate that that I feel qualified to, to, to enter into because that was really on the basis of health grounds. However, we didn't adequately support children, families, teachers and schools to be able to cope with what they had to deal with when learning went remote. And for so many children, I think the, the pandemic has been one of disconnect and isolation. Having said that, there's some really interesting research emerging that what some children really valued during the pandemic, or during the lockdown part of the pandemic, was that they got to spend more time with their parents. You know, and there's something really important that we can take from that, that even during what may have been the worst of times for some people, children wanted to have that time with their parents. And that was the, the positive that they will take out of these two years, that they got to see their parents more. Um, but I think, you know, we are now starting to see more and more the impact on mental health of children and particularly young people. And I think the group that we have really missed thinking about during the last two years have been university students. I mean, I've got a vested interest in that. I see the students all the time. I care about my students. We've had some really negative um, policy initiatives around the around the place of universities that have impacted very detrimentally. And we really haven't thought about what it's been like for those kids having a university experience almost entirely online and what the impacts have been on their mental health and well-being. So I think it's it's a really mixed story. And I think it falls to us now to think about the hope that we give to young people coming out of this pandemic or dealing with it in an ongoing way. Yeah. Sharon Friel, I wanted to jump back to something that you were talking about in terms of the social determinants of health. What do you think Australian policymakers really need to do to better grasp some of these social determinants and I guess make progress and and, and set the country on, I, I suppose, a better trajectory? Well, there's, so we saw, we, so we have seen over the past couple of years, we've seen that if governments want to act, they can do it overnight. And overnight, we saw an increase in income support, all, all as a kind of an economic recovery response. But income support increased to levels that people were able to live a decent life. We saw responses in employment that kept people in work, again, not done for any reason other than economic recovery, but really important. 
we saw some, particularly at the state levels, at state and territories, we saw some important investment in social and public housing infrastructure. So if you think of some of the, the remarks that Sharon Bessel uh, has just made uh, around the home environment, that's okay if you've got a home environment that is livable, you can spend time in, you've got the sort of the relationships as well within that home environment, but just even the physical structures that are there to you know, enable you to live a decent life. So we saw those sorts of policy responses overnight. They're the social determinants of health. But what we have seen is a clawing back in some of those uh, responses, particularly around the income support levels. So going forward, imagine keeping those sorts of you know, having uh, a decent work agenda having income support policies that were based on the real costs of living that enable people to live with dignity, to flourish. Imagine having, uh, instead of uh, a system that props up our housing crisis, our housing affordability crisis, imagine having a housing strategy that invested in green, affordable, social, public housing. All of that would be fantastic for society writ large and it would go an awful long way to address uh, our health, our well-being and reduce health inequities. They're just sort of three areas. The, the the education elements that Sharon, we, we laugh, um, Sharon Bessel doesn't think she's a public health person but she absolutely is a public health person, <laughs> isn't she? Yes. I regret it. Um, absolutely. All of our work, um, you know, if, if government was to do what the evidence uh, that Sharon generates, uh, if they were to do that, it would address uh, health inequities and it would address children's health and well-being full stop. Uh, so bringing children into those those discussions. And we saw it just around the sort of the, the childcare, uh, you know, so again, overnight, uh, the Australian government uh, made sure that there was access to free childcare. That's really good for children's development. That was really supportive for particularly low-income households, taking the financial stress off of them. That's going to have lifelong, or that could have lifelong, positive lifelong uh, trajectories for people's health and social development, but that stopped. So I want the Australian government to introduce on a long-term basis some of the things that they introduced as an economic recovery to COVID. Sharon, you were frozen on my screen just a moment ago with your hand up. Did you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I, I just wanted to pick up on some of those points that Sharon was making, you know, so, so powerfully. And I wanted to pick up particularly on the income support, the the supplements to to working age benefits that we saw in the first year of the pandemic. I mean, that was remarkable. That was a remarkable social experiment to see what happened in people's lives when suddenly they had enough money to live on. And I'm talking here about people who are reliant on government benefits or in very low paid and precarious income. You know, those supplements just made a world of difference. 
And we saw many, many thousands of children lifted out of poverty. You know, we are below the OECD average when it comes to child poverty. We had before the pandemic one in six children living in poverty in Australia. And we saw that shift during the pandemic. That was remarkable. You know, at a time when families were under such economic pressure, we actually addressed child poverty. And then we removed those supplements. And when we did that, we made a policy decision to let those children slip back into poverty and to continue to grow up in poverty. And so I guess I wanted to just do a little bit more imagining from what Sharon was doing. Imagine if we took a decision in this community that we would learn from that and we would say, no child in this country will live in poverty. Sounds very Bob Hawkish. But now we know we can achieve it. We know we can do it. And just on childcare, you know, we saw great things happening around childcare, but really no discussion of what childcare means for children. It was all very focused on letting their parents work. Imagine if we could offer childcare to all children in a way that worked for their families, but was around the best quality childhood experiences that children could possibly have. That would give us such hope for the future. Something that I've really taken away from our conversations this year on the pod is like, I guess the need to take a really big picture look at health and wellbeing. And, and Anna Greta, this is something of a plug, shameless plug, I suppose, but you've just uh, published a piece on policyforum.net about why the health system needs to be better prepared to address climate change as a critical factor in heart health. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in this space and why you're keen to see the health system take greater notice of factors like climate change? So it actually probably follows on quite nicely from what we've just been talking about, that um, I, I am really proud of the health system that I'm part of. I think we practice medicine and deliver healthcare in Australia in, in a really good way. Um, but I also think that what we're seeing is that our health system is is reactionary. We treat things after they've occurred. And we, we don't always look at the bigger picture of what it is that, that gives us the best health and well-being. Um, and so part of the work that I've been doing with colleagues at ANU and uh, nationally through an organisation called the Australian Cardiovascular Alliance is looking at what are the things that influence our cardiovascular health and wellbeing. Um, and there's a few different parts of the model. Firstly, recognising that we do often focus in medical practice on biology, what's happening at a cellular level, or if we think about coronavirus, what's happening with those spike proteins, and that's what's happening inside the body. That's what we, we expect that doctors understand that and that, that the health system is often focused around the biology of, of what's actually happening with disease. But the things that contribute to the likelihood of disease, if we want to prevent disease, if we want to modify the trajectory of various diseases, is seen in a much bigger context. And so that's Sharon Friel's work on the social determinants of health and the tremendously important part that the role of, of our society, the structure, uh, structures around us, the human relationships, the places that we're living in, the educational opportunities that we have, the economic systems that we live with. And the final element of this is the is the natural environment, you know, the, the actual environment, the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the water that we need to survive, and then either magnifying or protecting us often against those weather elements, uh, the where we live and how we live, so the social dynamics and the, the, the built environment that we live in. And so when we look at health research, we've spent a lot of time focusing in the last couple of decades on the biology of disease. That's where most of our research funding goes. 
we don't we don't fund anywhere near enough into the social determinants of health, do we, Sharon Friel? We we could definitely spend more money. And I think if we funded Sharon Bessel's work on child poverty to er- eradicate child poverty, we'd actually significantly impact on the rates of disease and, and illness and suffering in our community. And so it's a, a tremendous opportunity for us to reframe our understanding of health and wellbeing through biology and society. That final element is the element where we see climate change. And so where we've lived through Black Summer here, particularly in the ACT and across the eastern seaboard of Australia, offering us a devastating insight into what the future might be like as the world warms. And that was a two-degree summer. It was a summer where the air that we were breathing was compromised, where our food supply chains and our agricultural production was compromised, where our water supply in various towns around New South Wales was compromised. And where the, where the where we live and how we live was really sorely tested. We sort of see that at the moment with quite a cold and wet uh, winter at the, the other end of that climate spectrum. And so as we're forecasting into the future, I think recognising the role that the natural environment, the climate, the weather uh, systems will play on our health and wellbeing is so important if that's what matters. And for me, that's part of our conversations that we've had through this year and through last year, is that health and well-being really are a driver. They're a driver for human behaviour. They're what we're looking to to have meaningful and enjoyable, happy, healthy lives. And so offering a policy focus that gives us that broader approach to health and well-being, I hope is useful. Yeah. Look, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a moment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm Angus Blackman, and I'm here with Sharon Friel, Anna Greta Hunter, and Sharon Bessel in our final episode of Policy Forum Pod for 2021. With the emergence of the Omicron variant, we've all been reminded that the pandemic may be a long way from over. And we've also been reminded that looking after ourselves in Australia and expecting it all to go away really isn't an option. Earlier in the year, we had a really interesting conversation with Stephen Howes and Sally Moyle about Australia's Development Assistance Program. And I guess one of the things I like most about working where we do is that is how many people are focused on Australia's immediate region. And something that matters to me is we've discussed that I'm currently based in Southeast Asia and Malaysia and have previously spent a bit of time in Indonesia as well. These questions, I think for all of you, I'm interested to hear a little bit about how you see Australia's role in the region, whether you think it's doing its part and perhaps how it could make a greater contribution. Sharon Bessel, maybe start with you. Yeah, look, I think um, I think most 
developed countries, most, most countries of the global north, have not behaved as particularly good global citizens during this pandemic. And we certainly see that in the issues that have emerged uh, around global vaccine equity um, and the fact that we have, particularly in Africa but across the world, you know, many countries uh, that still don't have access to, to vaccines. Um, and we've seen a lot of reporting around that. So I think that is is a, a major issue uh, that we need to think about. In terms of Australia's role within the region, I mean, I think, you know, we have seen um, over, over a, a period of time Australia reducing our commitment to overseas development assistance um, across the region, particularly um, across Asia, as we've had a, a shift towards the Pacific, and I think there are good reasons for that shift towards the Pacific, although some of the drivers have been less around uh, development and more around geopolitical interests. Um, but in, in the current context, I think there is an urgent need for Australia to be thinking about how our development assistance program uh, can re-engage in parts of Southeast Asia. I know some of the uh, the programs that were withdrawn from Indonesia around, for example, uh, child and maternal health, you know, are going to be so much more important into the future. So I think we do need to rethink our our development assistance program and and how we can begin to rebuild into Southeast Asia particularly. But the other point that I wanted to make, we had that great conversation with Sally and Stephen earlier in the year, and Stephen was talking about the Pacific uh, Workers Program and and the way Pacific workers have come into Australia, and that's in many ways seen as such a positive program um, to support uh, individuals and national economies within the Pacific. But we've had some pretty disturbing reports of late about the way in which those workers have been treated uh, while they've been in Australia. You know, and Anna Greta and I have had our ongoing hashtag around value caring. And I think what we've seen there is a demonstration um, in some quarters of an absolute lack of care for people who have come to Australia um, to make an enormous contribution during the Pacific. So I think we need to think about those kinds of issues when we think about our role in the region as well. Sharon Friel, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, and particularly in terms of Australia's role in terms of progressing or getting closer to achieving some sort of global health equity? Yeah, we're so far away from global health equity. Um, <laughs> we're so far away from that. Uh, and I think as was just following on from Sharon Dessel's uh, remarks of, so what we've seen, I think, has been uh, a real variability in the evidence-informed responses uh, juxtaposed to a sort of a geopolitical response in Australia and by all many countries uh, worldwide. So when the evidence suits, it gets used, and when it doesn't suit, it's ignored. And we're seeing that at the moment with Omicron. Um, I think the like there's there's such a big challenge, and what the the vaccine equity issue is showing us is the really strong influence of the commercial players in all of this. And so your question, Angus, of you know, getting towards global health equity, unless we address some of the power imbalances within the global and national systems, and unless we address some of the absolute uh, control of policy agendas, uh, by the commercial uh, actors will never uh, address uh, 
health, uh, global health equity. And that partly relates to the, one of the points that Sharon raised there around the sort of the working conditions uh, within the, the, the scheme that she was just speaking about. You know, so if Australia thinks that that's a, a good scheme, and you know, certainly it is in terms of uh, development across the, the Pacific region, then we've got to do something about precarious employment because that's all about precarious employment conditions. And Australia has one of the worst records when it comes to precarious employment, particularly in the OECD countries. So you kind of, and and precarious employment is also within the purview of the commercial uh, entities. So we've got to do something about the labour market if we're going to do something about about global health equity. And we've got to do something that reigns in the intellectual property rights of these big commercial corporations that are controlling, for example, access to to vaccines. But hopefully we'll come back to the commercial determinants of health equity because we could speak for hours about them uh, in the way they've played out in this uh, pandemic. But yeah, they're just some initial reflections. Anna Greta? Uh, I'm not sure if I can add very much to those two fantastic uh, set of observations, but you know we are not safe until we're all safe, um, and that should inform how we behave. And we have a a, a role um, in terms of vaccine delivery in in the Asia Pacific region, and I would really love us to be taking a collaborative role with as many nations as possible, as part of a, a deliberate process of of um, of, of, of sharing. Uh, of valuing the relationships um, and recognising the extraordinary uh, privilege that we find ourselves in, the the gratitude for the for the um, the way in which we've been able to contend with the virus here in Australia, and then being able to share, I guess, our opportunity and our privilege with those who've been less fortunate. That's our yeah. role and responsibility. Yeah, and I, when you're saying that, I think reflect on the conversations we've had in recent weeks about uh, COP26 and the climate change negotiations in Glasgow. Uh, and I think about Siobhan McDonnell uh, coming on the podcast as well and, and really the importance of listening uh, to some of our Pacific neighbours and, and, and the existential nature of that threat. Sharon? Well, I, I suppose it, it that connects, I think, quite nicely to the, the point about power some of the reflections back from COP was and a colleague, a colleague Virginia Marshall, who works with us in in Regnet, friend um, of the show, friend of the show, um, and you know Virginia's experience of that uh, there uh, you know, as a, an Indigenous woman uh, there to be part of the negotiations for Indigenous peoples, uh, and they were shoved their pavilion was shoved up the back. So, and that matters. We know where you're positioned within these physical environments matters in terms of your voice in these decision-making processes. So recognise the importance of the issue and recognising a fair participatory uh, process is vital, and we don't have that in this country at the moment. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm the voice of despair tonight. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's part of where we're at at the moment, isn't it, that we, we, we can see, and I, I think 
know, coronavirus pandemic as a as a test of the fault lines. We see that it tests the fault lines in society in Australia. We see that occurring locally. We see it occurring regionally, and we see it occurring globally. And it, it's time to discuss the the way in which power is distributed, the way in which hierarchical power really does detract from uh, for, from from an equality of voice and equality of representation. Um, it, it's not. I don't think it's pessimistic. I think that there's never been a more important time to talk about these issues. I think there are some really interesting things happening, though. And I'm, I, I, you know, people often talk about this when we talk about hope for the future. But the role that young people are playing in leading protests around the inaction on climate change, I think, is a, a real cause for hope and optimism. Um, I do think there is a, a deep lack of fairness around expecting young people to lead conversations that grown-up politicians are not prepared to lead. Um, But I think, you know, when you look at what happened in COP and the presence of young people on the street, the presence of many people on the street, but the way in which those those actions are being led by young people, I think that's a, a real glimmer of hope for the future. And I wanted to link that Back to Anna Greta, you were talking about, um, you know, the the determinants of health and the importance of environment, and um, in relation to to well being and to young people's well being in particular, I think that is so important. So these issues around, you know, the the challenges and the the mental ill health that's come out of the pandemic, and then the conversations of COP and the despair that some feel out of that. And I think this really relates very directly to young people. It was a really interesting process uh, that was undertaken in Tasmania recently, asking young people across the state uh, to provide information or provide their thoughts on what's most important for their well-being. And the number one thing that young people talked about was their physical place and their environment. And so I, I, that's, you know, that's just got to be so much a part of the conversation that we have. Yeah, I think. A, sorry, you go. No, no. I was just going to talk about global and local. And, you know, this has been a topic that, that I think all of us have talked about at various points in the last few years, that the global crisis can play out very local with a very local consequence. And we see that in climate change, that the extreme weather events have local ramifications and the way in which we need to adapt will be in a local environment. And so that's part of that informs that discussion about power that we had earlier, that, the, that if we give autonomy and agency and engagement to local communities to be part of solving the problems, but be that the mental health crisis uh, evolving amongst younger people in their area, be that the, the environmental crisis as the challenges of climate change become more obvious, be that the social crisis of employment and looking at the balance of work and life that we all uh, are faced by. Um, and so giving giving local communities that potential to engage with the solutions, I think, yeah, is another theme that's come through so many of our conversations this year. Yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts, Sharon Bessel and Anna Greta, about some of your favourite moments on the pod this year. We've talked a number of times about uh, the brain-changing the brain conversations that we've had, but I, I guess I'm particularly interested in hearing from you some of the moments that have made you rethink your work or how you think about the world as a result of, as a result of the pods. Uh so I think we've had we've had such an extraordinary range of guests this year and and I'm sure I won't mention some of the ones that I've really enjoyed but but there are uh, particularly I've enjoyed the mini series that we've run 
Um, we we talked about leadership and we, we spent some time speaking to some extraordinary voices on leadership, talking about the politics of leadership, speaking about the independence movement and the way that politics and leadership might change in Australia, and I think we're seeing that now begin to play out. We talked about women in leadership and then we talked to uh, to Scott Ludlam about power and, and leadership and, and I do find myself talking about Scott's quote of, of sack the leader uh, on a fairly regular basis and I think quite deliberately now about how we can transfer power and agency and engagement to a local level as, a, as an extraordinary opportunity, I think, to, to solve some of the challenges of our time. So for me, uh, that, that whole series is part of a brain change in terms of my approach to leadership. The work series as well really stands out and we can't go through all of that of course but it was it was a fantastic series of discussions about work and to me, this has been part of the experience of the coronavirus pandemic and it, look, it's probably processes that were already underway as we were contending with climate change in the years beforehand. But there's never been a more important time for us to be able to disentangle the science that we contend with, things like the CO2 in our atmosphere, from the elements of human behaviour that we can modify. And so, you know, grow, uh, the, the measurement of gross domestic product, for example, that's a construct over which we have some control. And listening to Marilyn Waring define GDP, I, I go back over and over that repetitively. But work in, and its role in society, we, we listen to some fantastic conversations around work um, and I'll probably listen again to that particular series over the summer break. It really gets me thinking about why and how we work, where, where we get 40 hours from, whether we should be continuing with that and how much we can improve the health and well-being of our society by challenging some of these established norms that have been present now for decades, if not longer. Um, how much can we improve the world? I've actually found myself in, in clinical practice, in, in consultation environments now talking to people explicitly about time and wanting to be able to give time. And that, that came particularly from listening to Lyndall Strazen talk about time in that final episode of that work series. And uh, that was a brain-changing moment for me where I really began to think about the way in which we use our time um, and how we might do that better for our health and well-being. Sharon Bessel? I think Anna Greta has just done a, a beautiful job of um, overviewing some of the conversations we've had this year, and it has been such a great year. It, we've just had amazing conversation after amazing conversation, and mm. you know, Anna Greta talks about gratitude. Gosh, gosh, I feel so grateful to have been part of some of those conversations. Um, but I think the one thing that I would add to the leadership conversation that has really stayed with me was when we spoke with Natasha Stottespoir and we said to her, you know, what is the one thing that we need to do, particularly thinking about women in leadership? And she said, end violence against women. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that has been such a theme hmm. of, of uh, 2021, you know, yeah. the, the urgent need um, to to address that violence. The work mini series was such a highlight for me. I, I really enjoyed that. And I could just repeat what Anna Greta said so articulately, but do it a little bit less articulately. So I, I won't do that. Um, but I really enjoyed the conversation with Guy Standing. I mean, hearing Guy talk about, uh, the, 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 the challenges facing this emerging class of the pro, of the, the precariat that he talks about, I think just gives us so much food for thought. But the, the, the two parts of that um, work series that really stay with me, 
are similar to, to, to those that stay with Anna Greta, which is about time. And I remember um, James Sussman in our conversation with him talking about the work that he has done with, um, and I, I, I will get the, the pronunciation wrong, so I will use the old and politically incorrect term of the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, um, the anthropological work that he's done with, with those people and the way in which time for play and for leisure and for connectedness is so important. He talked about people doing about 15 hours work a week in order to be able to live well. Um, and then Lyndall Strasden, when we asked her what change she would bring about, what one piece of policy advice she would give, she said move immediately to a four-day week. And those two conversations strike me as, as helping to challenge our thinking about the place of work in our lives and to challenge the assumption that things have always been as they are because they haven't and to challenge the assumption that what is always will be because it need not. So uh, speaking of challenging things as they are, Australia is coming into an election year. Uh, we all know that elections are fought on more than just policy. So day-to-day -day politics, surprise events, personalities, trust all come into it. So as we wrap up today's discussion, I wanted to get your thoughts on two issues. Um, the first is, and I want to ask them together in the, interest, in the interests of time. So the, the first is that we've seen some pretty poisonous scenes in federal parliament throughout and throughout our political system in, the, in recent years. What do you want to see in terms of leadership in the lead up to the election to ensure that the debate can be struck constructive and in the best interests of the Australian people? And secondly, we're obviously a policy podcast produced out of a public policy school, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the one policy, perhaps something that might otherwise go under the radar um, that you'd like to see addressed in the campaign. Anna Greta, would you like to start? So two questions, one about leadership and what sorts of issues might be left out. The leadership miniseries we did it really helped me to think deeply about leadership and particularly in politics. And what I'm increasingly think, seeing is that policy frameworks are important. But in fact, leadership is not about the policy that can be put in place. It's shaping the narrative. Um, and I'll go back to my comments at the beginning of today's discussion around gratitude and how powerful it would be if we had leadership that was expressing gratitude to the entire Australian community for the extraordinary work that has been done in the last two years to contend with an extraordinary time, to go through economic hardship, through social challenges, through e educational disruption, uh, to go through ill health and, and the health challenges. And, and the power of that narrative. And so if I had a call out to our political leaders, to our political candidates, to those standing and beginning to engage in political dialogue, is to really think deliberately about the role that the story plays in our politics, the way in which we can use our words to inspire and create a better future, as opposed to dragging each other down. And, I, you know, I think we've had so many examples of that. We're all sick of it. We don't want to particularly see it anymore. Where It is time for us to be inspired by, by a, a better global narrative. So that, they're my thoughts on leadership. As I, I, as I said earlier, I, I'm really interested in how we can transfer the power of politics to a local level. It's not about a leadership which is particularly powerful, but it's about the narrative that we can shape with our political leadership. In terms of the policy issues that we're likely to face for the election, 
I, I'm not sure what we're going to end up fighting about. Are we going to fight about climate change? Are we going to fight about integrity? Are we going to fight about ca- accountability? Are we going to find ourselves arguing about an economic uh, situation, particularly if there's a, another budget before the election? I would like us to focus on the opportunity for transformation, the opportunity to do things differently into the future. And I worry that we're missing that opportunity to have an overt discussion about, about a new narrative um, for our future. And so if, I, if I'm involved in any of those sorts of conversations, I'll try and take it in that direction. Sharon Friel. Yeah, I, mean, I fully support the comments that Anna Greta has just made. Uh, I. I just like a bit of honesty mm. uh, <laughs> as we <laughs> move into uh, an election and uh, and just some courageous you know, people speaking from the heart who are saying this is going to be really hard, you know, sort of recovering, moving forward, addressing the sorts of challenges that we have. Um, it's going to be really hard, uh, but you know, collect collectively, this is how I would uh, like to to help uh, leaders going forward. I'm so sick of the we can't do it because it doesn't play out well politically. Like for goodness sake, um, you know, can we just have somebody who stands up or a, a number of people who stand up and say, "Let's do this together." Um, and you know, it's going to be hard, but we can do this together. So I want to hear that. Um, I'm so sick of the, the the smallness of our politics, and I'm really concerned that we're moving to a real sort of rise of populism uh, within this country and and across the the region and, and the world. So just you know, be a bit brave and honest and courageous. I'd like to be assured that we're not about to see an austerity agenda because that, of course, is a real risk when we've spent big, we've, you know, it's cost a lot of money, you know, the pandemic is, is costing a lot of money. Um, an austerity agenda would just send us way back. You know, the inequality will rise, the health, the well-being will drop. We have the lessons from the responses from countries who really did experience an austerity agenda uh, with the financial, the global financial crisis. Those countries who introduced a stimulus agenda fared much, much better uh, in the long term compared to those who introduced austerity. So be honest, be courageous and don't uh, take us backwards with an austerity agenda. Sharon Bessel, final word to you. Okay. Again, I agree with with Sharon and, and Anna Greta on on everything that they've said in terms of of leadership. You know, I think Sharon summed it up so beautifully by saying there is such a smallness to the way our political leaders are, are behaving. And I think there are three things that I would like to see underpinning the way our political leaders of all persuasions behave coming into the election and beyond. The first is empathy. I think we we so often see political narratives being shaped um, in a way that is about blaming others, about identifying the easiest target, um, and there is an absolute lack of empathy. So that's the first thing I would like to see. I would like to see some respect 
you know, I would like to see some respect playing out during question time in Parliament House um, in the way that our leaders engage with each other and with the, the people who elect them. Um, and the third thing that I would like to see is some vision beyond self-interest. And what we are seeing, this goes to the point of smallness, we are seeing so much of the political discourse being driven by a very narrow set of self-interests, which is around holding on to one's own power. And we desperately need a vision beyond that. Um, I, I agree entirely with Sharon that it would be devastating if we saw an austerity agenda being being playing out, particularly if it plays out in a way that gains traction amongst all sides of, of politics from amongst both the major parties. Um, and in terms of what I would like to see happen, I think these are, are less specific policy recommendations, but part of the vision that I would hope we would see from our political leaders. And I say this very conscious of, for those of our listeners who watch The Simpsons regularly, there's a woman in The Simpsons at all the town hall meetings that always pipes up saying, what about the children? Um, and I'm going to talk about children, but, <laughs> but I've got her voice ringing in my head. <laughs> but, you know, the research that I do is, is with children and, you know, hearing about what their life circumstances are and what their hopes are for the future. And from, from the conversations that I have with children, there are three things that are just so important but are so lacking, and one is conversations around inequity. We have to have a conversation around equality and distribution in this country. The second is a conversation around care. When you listen to what's important to children, it's always around the value of caring relationships. So how do our policies either support or undermine the value of care to to rephrase our hashtag, Anna Greta. Mm. Um, and the third thing that, that we have to have a conversation around is our need to address climate change. Um, that's a big issue. It's an issue that it is hard to, to get agreement around, but we simply must move beyond the narrow self-interest that's driving the current agenda to look at the vision for what we want in this country um, for, for our children, for future generations. Sharon, I think that we can summarise what you've just said and what we've all just said with a single hashtag, value caring. We put value caring in all policies, across all platforms, across all aspects of government, and we will see a better future. What an excellent point to end on. Sharon Bessel, Sharon Friel, Anna Greta Hunter, thanks so much for joining us on Policy Forum Pod today. Thanks, Angus. It's great having you behind the microphone. Thanks, Angus. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, shame we're not doing it in, in the room together. Ah, indeed, indeed. Well, hopefully, hopefully early next year. And uh, being the last episode of this year, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank a few people, uh, if uh, our listeners will indulge me, uh, without whom the podcast would not be possible. So, yes, I'm going to really rudely butt in. And I know you're going to thank everyone, but I, I know I speak on behalf of Anna Greta and I by saying we want to thank you. And I know you won't put yourself on the list. Um, Angus has been our executive producer throughout the year. He has been amazing. This podcast would not possibly happen every week without Angus. It wouldn't be produced so beautifully without Angus. So, Angus, thank you. Absolutely. I cannot echo that loudly enough. Up, up at ridiculous hours of the morning, up until ridiculous hours at night. Angus, you've been amazing to work with. Thank you so much for everything you've done this year. Thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, 
I wanted to thank Jack, Anna, Tracy, Anya, and the team at the ANU studio for their inte- incredible post-production and uh, production work. Uh, to Jarrah and Megan from the ANU media team for all your support and getting the word out. Uh, to Ed O'Daly, Jamie Kidston, and James Gigaher for believing in the pods and investing in them. Uh, for, to Martin Pierce for creating this fabulous thing that we all get to work on. Uh, to all our guests throughout the year, well, thank you so much for giving up all your time for us. Uh, to Helen Sullivan from ANU College of Asia and the Pacific and Fiona Yap from the Crawford School for your continued t- support. Uh, to our colleagues at the other podcasts in our suite, so uh, Rory Medcalf, Tim Wilford, Will Stoltz and the team at the National Security Podcast and Mark Kenny, Maria Teflaga and the Australian Studies Institute team for your role in Democracy Sausage. Uh, to my friends and colleagues at uh, Crawford School slash Policy Forum, David, Pat, Connie, Gil, Sally, for your incredible work to make all this happen. Uh, to Quentin Grafton, Editor-in-Chief of Policy Forum, for giving us all the freedom to be creative and to back ourselves. And uh, finally, to Anna Greta and Sharon, I think uh, outside universities sometimes there's this idea that, uh, you know, academics read a bit, they teach a bit, they maybe go on Twitter and wind people up for a little while and then overall take things pretty easy. Uh, but I've literally never met two more hardworking people. Uh, they live and breathe their work and they're passionate about it and it's a total inspiration. Uh, despite being excellent at it, they don't have to host this podcast. Uh, uh, but as I've learned is typical for them, they're um, incredibly generous with their time, their expertise and their encouragement, and it's been a complete pleasure working together. So thank you very much to both of you. <laughs> thank you, Angus. It's been amazing. Thank you so much for this year, Sharon Bessel. Thank you for your time and expertise and wisdom and caring. Um, working with the, the two of you has been one of the highlights for me of 2021. Yeah, it really has for me too. Um, Angus said thank you to you and I, I mean it from the heart. Anna Greta, there is no one I would rather have as my pod buddy. So thank you so much and and, a, and an enormous thank you to all our guests. What a privilege it is. Yep. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And and lastly, I guess I just wanted to say thank you to for listening. Um, thank you for being with us throughout the year. Thank you for persevering with us through chickens in the background home office studios, internet dropouts, and all the rest. Um, Your feedback and encouragement means the world to all of us. Um, Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to be back in 2022. Um, Just a reminder that you can reach out to us. Uh, We love it. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, on email at podcast at policyforum.net, or via our Facebook group, and you can just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar there. Let us know what you think about the series, some of your favourite moments throughout the year, and perhaps what you'd like to hear from us next year. If you haven't already, we'd love you to subscribe on whatever platform you pod with and leave us a review. As I said, we'll be back next year. I hope everyone has a wonderful Christmas and New Year. Stay safe. Bye for now. Bye.